Welcome back once again to the I Believe the Book podcast. and Well, I appreciate you so much tuning in to what is uh, part two of uh, what I did in episode one. This is our second episode of the new season. And uh, I told you, if you've seen it in the first one, it was going to be two parts. And so I was running pretty fast in that one and saying a lot of things. And I had to stop and take a break, get a little drink of this Coke Zero right here, product placement. If Coca-Cola wants to sponsor us, we'd be glad to take some of their money. And so uh, just had to stop and get a little drink there and catch my breath and jump right back in uh, to the rest of this lesson. And so where I finished there in that previous lesson was this, that I believe just like God did in the book of Esther, he gave her a for such a time as this moment. Just like God did in 1 Samuel 17 with David uh, in that valley of Elah fighting Goliath. I believe he was just the right person at just the right place at just the right time to, uh, to do a divine part of God's divine plan right there. Not that he fully understood all that God was doing, but that God had orchestrated all those events to put him in that place. And I would say to you that God has continued to do that down through church history and even just still does it today. Now, I don't know that we're always going to know our for such a time as this moment. I believe that there are going to be things that we're just being faithful to serve God in our place and our part. And we're trying to follow the Lord and do what the Lord says and preach what He says and teach what He says and all of that. And I think that we're going to do that and we'll see some good we hope come from it. But I believe that we're going to find out in heaven that there were some bigger things happening that we didn't even know about. Maybe somebody saw it online in another part of the world and they might get saved and, boy, change their whole country and we may never find out that we played a role in that, but it was definitely going to be a such a time as this moment for us. I believe that God still does that. And what I submitted right at the end of the last lesson was this, that I believe that God did that in the early 1600s when he gathered together the King James translators. I think that they were just the right men at just the right moment in time using just the right method to help uh, God fulfill his promise, the big overarching promise of the preservation of the word of God, that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. And I believe that they were playing a role that maybe they didn't fully even understand themselves, that God had in his plan to preserve the word of God. I want to share some things with you about why I believe they were not just, you know, it was not just an accidental moment of gathering of people, but I believe that God had supernaturally put the right men in the right moment at the right, in using the right method. So first of all, let me just address, if you will, the men that were there, the men were, that were there. Now, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, wherever you stand on the Bible, and uh, I made two statements at the beginning of the last lesson about this, and I don't believe you have to be able to read Greek and Hebrew in order to know what God was saying in the Bible. I believe that He has perfectly preserved His words for us in English. I'm not against studying those things. Don't anybody run out here and say that. But I'm just saying I don't believe it's necessary to know what God said. Secondarily, I want to talk to those who have been made to feel maybe a lesser preacher or been made to feel that they're a lesser student of the Bible because they cannot read Greek or Hebrew. I want you to stay with me because 
because I'm going to tell you something. God has used some amazing people to get us to this place that if you cannot do those things, you can still have the Word of God, study the Word of God, know the Word of God, even though maybe you have not been blessed with the opportunity to study those other languages. And so with all that being said, I want to say to you that I realize we are going to have to put our faith. Now, my faith is in God that He made the promise and that He's got a plan on how He's going to fulfill the promise. But somewhere in that process, to get it from uh, Greek and Hebrew and all of that into English and so on and so forth, it's going to take some scholars' work somewhere along the way. So I'm going to have to put some measure of faith in some scholars in order to realize that God has preserved His Word in this English language. Now, what I've decided is that I'm not the scholar that I want to put my faith in. I've also decided that I don't, I don't want to put my faith in the scholarship of just somebody who's had some semesters of Greek or Hebrew or even a few years of Greek or Hebrew. I want to say to you that I'm going to put my faith, I believe, that God gathered together some of the greatest minds of history in the 1600s. And he did it on purpose, knowing what he was doing, because they were legitimately scholars, linguistic specialists that he put together. And so let me just tell you why I think that about some of these men. Uh, I want to say this. There's a quote about the translators as a group, and here's what it said, that there were many chosen that were greater in other men's eyes than in their own, and that sought the truth rather than their own praise. So I appreciate that, that statement. It shows us, I believe, some of the humility of the translators. They were not trying to make a name for themselves. They wanted to sincerely do the best they could, I believe, to get this, uh, the Word of God translated into English accurately. Men like John Reynolds, uh, some sources say this, that, that, that he could justifiably be called the father of the King James Bible. He was the, uh, the president of Corpus Christi College at Oxford, uh, Reynolds, he was called this the most learned man in England. Now think about that. Uh, one quote about him says this, he was pious, he was courteous, he was modest and kind. It said that he was wholly honest and with a vast memory that made him, quote, a living library, a third university. Now think about that. In other words, they said they had Cambridge, they had Oxford, and they had Reynolds. That he was so brilliant in his mind and in his ability to memorize things that they considered him a third university in and of itself. And Reynolds himself could read or had read all of the Latin and Greek fathers and all of the ancient records of the church that he could come by. So he's not just using, and again, I'm not against this, but I'm saying he's not just using his computer program to look at the Greek or Hebrew word. He's not just using a lexicon or even even just having you know one or two uh, classes of Greek or Hebrew or even many, this man has had the opportunity to get his hands on the Latin and Greek writings of the great fathers of the church, and he was able to read those writings in those languages. Great scholar. How about Lancelot Andrews? Lancelot Andrews was ordained at the age of 25. He worked his way up the ecclesiastical ladder to be dean of Westminster and chaplain to Queen Elizabeth. Now listen, it was for his linguistic mastery that Andrews caught King James' eye as the perfect lead translator for this project. Now, the man could speak 15 modern and 6 ancient languages. Now, I need you to grasp what I just said. He hasn't just studied for a few years. He hasn't just read for many years. He could literally speak in 21 languages. Many of the folks who uh, want to come out online and, and, and deal with Greek and Hebrew, I appreciate that they've studied it, but I wonder to myself, can they speak fluently in it? I would wonder that. Because see, what I'm trying to figure out is, 
what Greek scholars, what Hebrew scholars am I going to put some confidence in that God might use to perfectly preserve his word and to get it into the English language? And what I've decided is I think I'm going to settle on these guys. I believe they were just the right people at just the right place at just the right time. It says that Andrews possessed a memory bordering on the photographic, said a man of intense piety who spent five hours every morning in prayer. I'm just going to say to you, I believe a man that will pray uh, you know, and do his devotions for five hours in the morning that God can help him get it right. I believe that. A very uh, religious, righteous man. It says that Andrews kept in the chapel a book of private devotions which when, were pu- which when they were published after his death became a classic Anglican guide to prayer. So he was a man of great prayer. According to some accounts, he died with that prayer book in his hand, stained with the many tears that he cried over the years as he prayed for himself and others. He had a great ability, listen to this, in Greek, in Latin, in Hebrew, in Chaldee, in Syriac, and the Arabian language. And so I just believe that he was a legitimate linguistic scholar, and I believe that God on purpose brought him in on this project. A man named John Overall, he was a Latin scholar. He was a prodigious learned man, they said, learned and judicious with a strong brain to improve his, re- his great reading, and he, and he was accounted one of the most learned controversial divines of his day, one of the most profound of the English nation. Sir Henry Seville, I believe is how you pronounce this man's name. It said after his studies at uh, Brazenose College, Oxford, he traveled in 1578 through Europe where he gained a general acquaintance with the learned men and through them obtained a number of rare Greek manuscripts for a time. He was a tutor to Queen Elizabeth in Greek and mathematics, the most learned Englishman in profane literature of Queen Elizabeth's reign. John Boyce, another one. His father taught him Hebrew when he was five years old. <laughs> I believe uh, Brother Brandon sitting in here, I believe five years old, if you can read Hebrew, you're a pretty sharp guy, wouldn't you say? And so he could read Hebrew at five. It said that he actually read a, a New Testament that had been translated into Hebrew when he was five years old. He was attending college at the age of 12. He went to the university library at four in the morning and stayed until eight at night without any breaks. And for 10 years, Boys was the chief Greek lecturer in the college, reading his lecture in his chambers at four in the morning to many fellows and others. He was a most exact grammarian. Boys had read 60 different grammars. He fasted sometimes twice a week or once in three weeks. In his piety, he always knelt with his family on the bare bricks. Often he prayed while he was walking, for he approved of frequent, rather long prayers. Now, from what I have read, there were six groups. And there was uh, two at Westminster, one for the Old Testament, one for the New, two at Oxford, and one, uh, one for each Testament, and then two at Cambridge. And so these men, I just gave you a few of them. But what I'm telling you is, these were not just average guys. These were not just pretty good Bible students. These were very, it seems to be most of them, at least, very, uh, very good men, morally, spiritually very good men, who were vastly, vastly educated and learned men. And God brought them together. I mean, and I believe that they were the right men for this job. I believe that I can trust their abilities in the area of language. Not only I believe it was the right men, but I believe they were there at just the right moment. You say, well, well, why would you say that? Why was, why was the early 1600s the right moment to do a project like this? Well, I believe I could say to you that it was a time of exceptional intellectualism. Well, you've got a five-year-old who can read Hebrew, for goodness sakes. It was a time of exceptional intellectualism. It was right at the end of the Renaissance period. Can you think about that? 
If you look at the Renaissance, it goes into that early part of the 1600s. Some of those people who were writing and doing things then are included among the Renaissance people. People like Shakespeare who had been writing right about the same time the King James Bible project was being done. Shakespeare at the end of the Renaissance. I mean, that time of great intellectual brilliance. And we've got good writers in our world today, but do you think any of them are considered better than Shakespeare? Think about that. We've got great artists today, but do you think there's any of them painting something that people would say is better than the Mona Lisa? What I'm submitting to you is that this was a particular time in human history when intellectualism was at a peak and that some of the stuff that was done all those years ago has still not been bested even today. And I want to submit to you that that's the way I feel about this King James Bible. That what was done, it was done by exactly the right men at exactly the right time. Preacher James Knox was talking about this idea one time and he made an interesting statement that I, I think carries a lot of merit. He said back in the mid-1900s, talking about when he was growing up, he said the most brilliant people in the world were working on space travel. Some of you can think back to that and you know that's the case. America was fighting against Russia trying to see who was going to be the first one to the moon and all of that. And the brightest minds in the country were brought together and put on the project of space travel. He said that today, in our day today, the most brilliant people in the world work in technology. He brought up Elon Musk. I asked a group of students and a group of kids one time and I was preaching maybe chapel or, or, or somewhere I was standing before a group of young people and I said, who do y'all think is the smartest people in America, smartest man in America? And the names came up, Elon Musk. And, and the name would come up, you know, Bill Gates and people like that. And you know where they are? They're in technology. That's where the brightest minds go in our day today. Back in the early 1900s, the brightest minds were working in the field of space travel. Today, they're working in the field of technology. Do you know what the brightest of minds did in the 1500s and the early 1600s? The most brilliant people, this is what Brother Knox said, history will show, that the most brilliant people in the world were working in language. They were working in the translation of Greek literature into English. Books were their internet. Many had uh, been illiterate in the world, and now with the invention of the printing press, uh, people were learning to read, and those old texts uh, were mesmerizing to them, so they would translate these old texts into English, and people could learn to read it. And it was just taking, uh, you know, it was just taking the world by storm. That's why I'm telling you, I don't think it was an accident that God chose this time. I believe it was exactly the right men at exactly the right moment in history. Uh, Brother Knox said this, The greatest thing you could be was a scholar in languages, especially in the ancient languages of the Middle East. And so when that's what many of the brightest minds were doing, God looked down and said, that's going to be the right time to do it. And he pulled 54 of those brilliant men together. They were just the right men at just the right time. And I'll give you lastly, I believe they had just the right method to make sure that they got it right. The Archbishop of Canterbury drew up a list of rules by which these scholars were to go about this ever so important project. There was at least 15 of those rules. One rule was, quote, translations and revisions were to be done first by individuals, then submitted to the whole company for scrutiny, criticism, and final approval. And so there were six groups, and you would do your translation, then you would present it to the other men of your group, and then that would be presented to the other five groups, and only after everyone had agreed was it approved to be a part. This re required great humility. Remember that original statement about the translators are very humble men, many of them, if not most of them. And it said that they would submit themselves. You know, that took a lot of, uh, of humility to submit yourself to such scrutiny. Even though you might have great learning, they were willing to say, but you check this and see what you think. And you check this and see what you think. And only after everyone agreed, that's great humility had been submitted. And they did this, listen, for four years. For four years. 
And they worked together. So that means every part of the translation was examined at least 14 times. After that, each portion was submitted then to a committee of 12, two of the brightest supposedly from each of the six groups. And then this group had to agree on the final word choices. I'm just saying to you, well, that's a very careful very good method. It's not just a few people getting together and doing what they think. It's a large group of particularly schooled men getting together to try to get it right. And so the bottom line is we're going to have to put our faith in some scholar somewhere. If you believe in the promise of preservation, and I don't know how you get around that in the Word of God, but if you believe in that, then you believe that God's always had this plan and that he has been doing things down through time and using his men and women to continue that promise, to continue making that promise come to pass. And I believe that what he did in the early 1600s was another for such a time as this moment. Now, they may not have known it. I know that many want to talk about what they said in the preface. I'm going to submit to you. I don't know that they understood what God was doing, just like oftentimes his children don't fully understand the big picture thing he is doing with them in their moment while they're just trying to be faithful and do the best job that they can do. But I'm going to say something to you. I believe it was a for such a time as this moment and that when those 1611 translators got together that God was involved and I believe that the right men at just the right moment used the right method and that God supernaturally oversaw it and that he helped them, he helped them get it right. And that we now have the fulfillment of that promise in this King James Bible. By the way, just to throw this in here to give you another uh, example of why, why is this such a big deal to you? Why is it such a big deal to you? Well, what I've said many times is that when you begin to change away from what we believe the, the Word of God is in this King James Bible, you, you make what you think might be minor differences or what you consider a, a better translation than what these men were able to do. And almost every time it makes a major problem. For example, the ESV, a very, very well-known, very loved version right now by the intellectual crowd. You know that in Philippians 2, 6, they... They, they quote it very differently. They translated it very differently than what the King James did. And I'm almost done. But I want to give this one to you in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. is a very powerful verse here who says, well, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. So there's your context. It's Christ. Christ who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So in other words, robbery is taking something that doesn't belong to you. And it said that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, to call himself God ultimately. And the reason it wasn't robbery is because he was God. He is God in the flesh. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's what the Bible says. Now listen, that's a deity of Christ verse. And I, 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 don't, I don't know of anything more important than believing that Jesus is God. And so... When they come along with the ESV translators and they decide that the King James translators didn't get that right and they give what they consider a better rendering, here is what they said. They said, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. <laughs> I mean, so they're saying when they translated it what they consider a better way than the translators that God used back in 1600s. Here's what they said. They said that even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing that he could grasp. 
surely you see that that is tearing down the deity of Christ. And, and I understand you may have an explanation away from it, but you're forcing that explanation because very clearly it just says that at least in the mind of Jesus, he didn't think he was equal with God. Well, then that makes a contradiction to the places where he told them, I and the Father are one. So see, that's, that's not just some silly little debate. No, that's a major problem. And what I'm telling you is I believe that God perfectly preserved his words in this King James Bible because he promised he would. And that I believe that he used those men at that particular moment and they used that great method in order to have uh, God use them in this big plan. I don't know that they understood that they were being used in that way. But I believe that if I'm going to have to put my faith in some scholars, I'm going to put my faith in what God did in the early 1600s in using those men to give us this book. God bless you. I hope you'll like it, subscribe to it, Share it, all the different things that you can do for technology to help us in these podcasts. And I think that'll be a blessing. We look forward to getting another one out to you soon. God bless you.